Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 10, uh, chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the ones that went astray? If he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is a reading of God's word. It's good to see everybody uh, here today, especially in nice weather. We had a great time at the picnic. Those of us who were able to make it, the weather was perfect and um, it was fun. So if you missed it, maybe next time we can uh, make it again and um, continue uh, that tradition. Um, we've been talking about, or we started in Matthew chapter 28, and we've been talking about the Great Commission. And what we said there in broad strokes is that there were pretty much in a nutshell given the mission of the church, what the church is supposed to do. And one of those things that we said among many is that the church is called to make disciples. And we try to define what a disciple is. And simply put, what we said is a disciple is, is someone who follows Jesus, right? Um, that following Jesus and growing in your faith and personal obedience to him is a part of that, is a part of the discipleship. And what we argued after that was that following Jesus then isn't just a personal, individual activity. It's also corporate. It's communal. We try to make the case that somehow, some way, my following Jesus impacts, influences, in one way or another, for better or for worse, others around me who follow Jesus or are trying to. And so we said that the responsibility then of, of growing and following Jesus, of, of making disciples, isn't just on an individual. It's on the church. It's in the life of the church. It's how we interact with one another. We try to make the case that it's not just the pastor's job to make sure that we are doing everything we can to help you grow, but it's also your job. At some level, as you interact with one another, to make sure that your fellow brother or sister grows and that they are not stumbled. And so that's why we've been talking or spending, the, it's getting more and more intense, you know, and, and um, as we've been looking at chapter 18, the Gospel of Matthew, I think that's what Jesus is trying to tell us from the very beginning of Matthew 18. All of Matthew 18 is Jesus' attempt to get at two very important issues or questions in the Christian life and in the life of the church. And that is first, what is the character of a person who belongs to the kingdom of God? And secondly, how does that person who is part of the kingdom of God relate to other people who are part of the kingdom of God? So we're talking about the life of the church. That's what he's talking about. That's this whole chapter, right? What's the character of the kingdom? And how do people part of that kingdom relate to one another? And what we said last time was those two things are actually related. They're actually related. Okay? 
And so in verses 1 to 6, and this is just a review for those of us who weren't following in the past few weeks, verses 1 to 6, the, the, the disciples who are following Jesus are arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom, and they ask Jesus, and Jesus brings this little child, and he says, this is great in the kingdom. And the illustration, or the point is, that the essential aspect, the character of God's kingdom is humility. Remember that a few weeks ago? Humility. To be someone who has no status. To be someone who has nothing to offer but everything to receive. To be like that child. The character of the kingdom is humility. And you don't get the kingdom then just because you're smart. You don't get into the kingdom, you don't get God because you have power or influence. You don't come into the kingdom of God because of your birth or your birthright. You come in through humility. That's what he was trying to teach them. And humility, then, we said, is not the only way you come into the kingdom, but humility is also the way people live in his kingdom. And so verse 5 and 6, we see that one of the ways that real humility is manifested is in your attitude towards others. In other words, Christian humility is not just to be concerned, how can I be like a child of God? But Christian humility is also concerned for other people who are like the child of God. People who the world, or you, consider unimportant. People who the world, or maybe just you, marginalize. People who the world says is least powerful, least respected, or just you who sees them this way. And it's the concerning care, it's, it's the awareness for those kind of people that shows what humility does, that they are not preoccupied and focused on themselves, but they are focused on others. And the whole point of the past couple of weeks, we are the children of God, made to be sons and daughters of Him, only because it is the Son of God who showed us humility to the cross. Why? For the sake of who? Others. Even His enemies. And so I think Jesus is teaching, and he's getting more and more deeper with this, that as children of God, who are humbled by the fact that Jesus has given his life for us, who want to follow this Jesus, that we're not just concerned for our own personal discipleship, our own growing, our own faithfulness or obedience, but we are concerned for other children, their faith, their growth, their discipleship by the way we treat them, by the way we speak to them, by the way we say things with our words and our actions, by the amount of attention we give to them, by the time we spend with them. And so last week then, as I bring you up to par, we focused on a negative aspect of this relationship. Uh, last time we looked at this passage in Matthew chapter 18, and there's a strong warning then against anyone who causes one of his children to stumble. He says in verses 5 and 6, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little children who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have great millstone fastened around his neck 
and be drowned to the depths of the sea. Okay? That's what we said last week. But not only are we to be careful uh, about our own walk with the Lord, but that we're to be careful not to stumble others in their faith. Right? That's a negative aspect. But today, as we look at these verses, just, just read by Hannah, uh, and, and particularly in verses 10 to 14, I want to show you a flip side of this. Uh, uh, negatively, we, we want to interact in a way, we want to encourage growth by making sure that we're not the reason that their life in following Christ is stumbled. But positively speaking, uh, we want to also positively, initially care. Care for them. And we find this, why? And the reason is because in verse 14, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Did you hear this? Your God is concerned that none of his children should perish. He cares for his children. Right? But what does that word perish mean? Okay, this is, I know this is going to be a little more like Bible study in some ways, but I think it's important. Uh, what, what does the word perish mean? And when you think about perish, you're probably thinking, well, God the Father doesn't want anyone to go to hell. Right? That's what it means. Eternal uh, punishment. He doesn't want anyone to do that. And, um, and, and so that he cares about that. And that, that might be absolutely true. Uh, sometimes the word means this. But when you look here in the original word, the Greek word here, the word perish can also simply mean to be scarred, to be, to be, to be disfigured, to be marred, to be ruined. The word perish here means, could also mean to, be, to enter into disaster. And so a more uh, a literal translation of that verse in verse 14 is this. It's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should be spiritually marred, spiritually wounded, spiritually ruined. In other words, I think in this passage, in this verse, Jesus is saying that his Father is, is, is not concerned about you going to hell or not. He's concerned for his children that their spiritual progress won't be stumbled, it won't be ruined, that their discipleship won't be marred, enter into disaster. He cares about that. And so God cares. We know Jesus cares about that. And in verse 10, even angels care. And the implication then is this, so should you. So should you that you should care that not one of his little ones should be spiritually off track in their progress in following Christ. And that's why you look at verse 10. This is why, he says, see that you do not, therefore, despise one of these little ones. Now, just be clear, when Jesus now says little ones, he's not talking literally of children. Now he's talking about those who belong to him his children, us, okay? And he says in verse 10, verse 14, this is what God cares about. Verse 10, so see to it that you don't despise one of the little ones. Verse 10 means this, see to it, be careful, take heed, see that you don't do this, don't despise one of the little ones like you. Now what does that word despise mean? When you think of the word despise, you're probably thinking hate. And that's an obvious one. God cares for these people in your church, fellow brothers and sisters. 
so should you, and therefore you shouldn't hate anyone. And that would be absolutely true. But the word here that, that Jesus uses here in the Greek, it's interesting. Um, it's this Greek word, and I'm going to get nerdy on you, but it, it's literally pronounced kata foreno, okay? Kata foreno. It's two words. Foreno means, has to do with your mind, uh, your thinking. Kata means down. So when Jesus says, don't despise one of these little ones, he's not just saying, don't hate people, don't be a hater. He's saying, don't think down on people. Don't think down on people. And before you start saying, well, I don't think I think down on people. I don't think I'm better than, well, let's be careful. You know, when, 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 when poor people look at the rich and say, oh my goodness, they're so bougie. You just look down on them. When rich people look at poor people and say, oh my gosh, they need to work harder. What's wrong with their life? Get up their quality of life. You, you, you just look down upon them. You despise them. When you looked at a person and you heard, found out that that person voted for Donald Trump, oh my gosh, how dumb can somebody be? You just despise them. You look down upon them. Oh, oh you like Sleepy Joe. You voted for Biden. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you, know, you just look down upon them. I can't believe you're a Mets fan. <laughs> I can't believe you're a Yankees fan. I don't hang out with Yankee fans. You just despise them. All those religious people, they're so snobby. They think they're better than everyone. You've looked down upon them. All those, those, those pagans, those irreligious people, they're lost, they're gone. You've despised them. You've looked down upon them. Another word for despise is this, disdain. And you look up the word definition of disdain, it's this, quote, the feeling that someone or something is unworthy of your consideration or respect. See to it that you do not despise, look down, disdain one of these little ones. And you know one of the ways we do this all the time? By looking at certain people that we don't get along with, by looking at people that we feel offended by, by looking at people that we, we just don't agree with all the time, we look at them with indifference. Indifference. We push them out of the way. Well, he, that person made that his, his or her choice, and, and that was his choice or her choice, and that's the way he chose to live, and, and so I'm done with them. I mean, I don't, that's fine with me. I don't care. I wipe my hands clean of that. Uh, I, I remember talking to a, a, a friend who was hurt by or felt betrayed by another friend, and, and, and you know both of them were Christians and all that, but this is what he said. After what he did to me, he is dead to me. He's dead to me. He doesn't exist. That's despising. Okay? That's despising. And here's the problem with that. When you think down on others, for whatever reason, however justified you are, when you think down on others, immediately what you're doing is you lift yourself up. 
here's the disciples, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus says, no, this child is the greatest. It's humility. Don't despise one of these little ones because when you do, you lift yourself up in one way or another by putting others down. And so he says in verse 10, don't put yourself up here and look at them as if they're below, as if they're beneath you, looking at them with disdain, looking at them with indifference, as if they're valueless or useless or worthless, holding them in contempt, holding a grudge, not worth your consideration. Don't do that to any one of these little ones. Why? Verse 14, it is not the will of your father. Okay? So verse 10, verse 14, and in the middle of verse 10 and 14, Jesus gives us this parable. So the answer is this. What, what should we do? All right? Uh, what's the positive thing to do? If, I, if I'm not supposed to disdain, look down on anyone, um, then what do I do? How do I respond? What's the positive thing that I do? And in verse 12, Jesus immediately asked them a rhetorical question. He says, what do you think? What do you think? And he begins telling this parable, this short two-verse parable that we all are familiar with. And he says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. And, you know, you hear that, and you've heard this before, and he's probably thinking, this has got to be one of the easiest parables that, that, you, that you've ever heard or that you've ever read. That here's Jesus, and he's talking about being a shepherd uh, who's going after someone who's lost. He goes out, and he's happy for that. And how wonderful is that? But, he, but you know, this is, what, when I heard this, this, this is the first time I thought about it. When I read this parable, and, and others like it, like the one in Luke chapter 15, I would think of myself, and, and say, well, it would be nice if I was the lost sheep, that this shepherd would come after me is a great idea. But what if I was the 99? What if I was one of the 99? And I thought about this, you know, it, it didn't seem right uh, when I first read this passage, because it looks like in this parable, it looks like God cared a whole lot more for that one sheep that he goes after than he did about the other 99. I mean, why go after the one when you've got me and the rest of the 99? Mathematically, it doesn't make sense. Why risk your life as a shepherd to go after one lost sheep who is always wandering off, right? Always getting lost, always going astray. Why would a shepherd waste his time on one when he's still got 99? And then in verse 13, we're told he rejoiced over that one that he found more than the 99 that he lost. And to me, when I first read that, I, I thought he was saying this, God is playing favorites. That's the only reason that I could think of, that the only reason he goes after that one is because that one sheep he really liked more than even the rest of the 99. You know, back in uh, a long time ago, when I used to do youth group, you know, as their youth pastor, I, kids would always ask me, you know, Tondozani, uh, or a pastor, who, who's your favorite? <laughs> you, ever, you ever ask that? Who's your favorite? And of course, the right pastor thing to say is, look, 
I don't have favorites. I love everybody. But you know, I'm going to be very honest. I had favorites. <laughs> okay? I have favorites. Right? And even as I'm talking to some kids who are asking me that, I said, like, you're not one, right? You're not the one. I have favorites. Now, I'm a, I'm a mature person now, you know, and a sojourner. I don't have any favorites. <laughs> right? It, it, that wouldn't seem fair, would it? So what's the deal here then? What, why does Jesus share this parable? Okay? And everyone listening to Jesus would have been familiar with the idea. When everyone listening to Jesus talk about this parable, they, they would say, oh, I know what he's talking about. The Lord God Israel is like a shepherd. Like David that sings in Psalm 23, the Lord is what? My shepherd. And everyone hearing this parable would have known that, that they would have drawn the conclusion immediately. Aha! Jesus is telling this little parable about a sheep who is lost and the shepherd who goes out to find him. Why? Because he wants us to tell us something about the character of God. And what is that? Follow me here, okay? Verse 10. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. Verse 14. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. In the middle, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them go astray, does he not leave the 99? Verse 10 and verse 14 centers around this parable and all three places, the number one is prominent. All three times, the numerical one is put there. One of these little ones, one of these sheep, right? One of these little ones that should not perish. All three times, the numerical one is put there to remind Jesus' followers that nobody gets eliminated. That he cares. Not just for a whole flock, not just for a whole group, not just for a whole church, but he cares personally, individually, each and every single one, each and every individual who come to him. That every single one is important to the care of God the Father. And the implication is this. If this is how God thinks of us, each and every one of us, then it must mean that's how we should think of each other. That each and every one is thought of as the utmost importance to the care of our Father. So verse 10, don't despise. And you might be thinking, okay, well, if all of us are important to him, and if each and every one of us is important to him, then why doesn't that story, the shepherd, go after just that one and then rejoice more over that one than the rest? And the answer is simple. You know it. If, if you're a parent, if you have more than one child, you know how it, you know how it is. You're, you love all of your children, maybe in different ways, but still all of them. But when one of them is sick, 
When one of your kids are, are hurting, when one of them is not doing so well physically, mentally, spiritually, whatever, and everyone else seems all right, doesn't your heart go out more to that one? Aren't you always thinking and worried about that one? And Jesus then is using this illustration that I think we can all identify with in order to emphasize to us, not that God loves some children more than others, but to show that God loves all his children, each and every one. But his heart goes out more to the one that is struggling, stumbling, messing up, even sinning and straying from him. This is the heart of a father. This is the heart of a mother. And this is the heart of your father in heaven, verse 14. It's his will that he does not want any one of these little ones to wander away, to stumble, to perish, not even one. You know, that sounds so wonderful. I don't know. I don't know about you. That sounds so wonderful to me. It, it sounds so good to me. You know why? It so encouraged me to me because, you know I, know, I know I'm the pastor, but I'm always getting lost. I, I'm the one oftentimes who, who is, uh, I guess, straying from him. I, I'm the one who's stumbling. I'm sometimes the one who's causing trouble. I'm the one who's doing the wrong things many times. I'm the one who's, who's sinning. I, I'm the lost sheep. And that truth is so encouraging to me. It's so wonderful because to know that the Father is, is patient with me, that, that he will pursue me, and then when he pursues me, he's not going to punish me. There's no contempt. There's no grudge. He doesn't say, I'll take you back once, but three strikes and you're out. No, it's the very opposite. He's ready to rejoice when I get back with him. It's so encouraging to know that. But here's my problem. It's so hard to believe this. So hard to remember this when it's someone else. When it's another sheep, another one who is straying or stumbling, causing trouble, and even sinning against me or against someone I love, a fellow Christian. You know how we are, and this is where we, this is so hard, but think about it, you know how you do it? You get into a dispute, you get into a conflict, a disagreement, immediately what you're doing is this, you're thinking side. Here, let's pick this side or that side. Which side are you on? Well, you're on the side of the right, and when you put yourself on the side of the right, what do we do? Well, we exclude the wrong. Right? You're messing up. That's not right. That's wrong. You hurt me. You betrayed me. And so we say, I'm on this side. You're on that side. And we demonize them. We kick them to the curb. You know how it works, right? Those of us here who are the veritable black list, you've got a bunch of people on the white list, but when they do something wrong to you, they move over to the black list and they never get out.
When it's the other person, I have a problem with that. When it's the other person doing it, especially to me, this is what I want to do. I'm just going to ignore him. I'm going to be indifferent. He's dead to me. And the question that I think this passage requires of us is this. That person, the offender, is he or she still a sheep? Is that person still one of his children? And of course, it is the offended, it is the hurt, it is the one that's been marginalized, the one that's been sinned against, that, that needs to pursue justice, that needs healing, and that needs care and compassion, because God cares, and his heart goes out to those sheep, and so should ours. But what about the one who did the offense? Not the one sinned against, but the one who sinned. The one who is truly in the wrong. Is he or she still a sheep? Is he or she still a child? Is he still saved by grace? Is she still saved by grace and not by works? Then verse 10, don't despise them. Don't think down. Verse 12, what do you think? What do you think God wants from you in that kind of situation? To kick them to the curb? To put them on your eternal blacklist? To treat him or her with indifference? Or worse, to treat that person as if they were dead to you? And Jesus tells this parable to really essentially say to us, if that's us, look at the Father's heart. He does not despise nor disdain. What does he do? He pursues. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, who left his father's home, came into this world to seek and save the lost. He was the one who was kicked to the curb. He was the one who got blacklisted, treated with disdain and indifference so that wayward and wandering sheep, sinful sheep, who deserve just as much, might be recovered back to the fold. Jesus wasn't, he wasn't just treated as dead to some people because they didn't like him. He died. He literally died for people. He laid down his life for his sheep. The worst sheep, but still his sheep. And this is why Jesus says of himself in the Gospel of John, I am the good shepherd. Not because he cares for each and every sheep by name, but because he is also a shepherd who loves to recover lost sheep and is eager to rejoice when he does. Let me ask you a question today. Are you really following the shepherd, this shepherd? Are you following Jesus? As his children, do you know your father's heart? 
then what is your attitude towards fellow sheep? Towards each other in the church. Even when you feel wronged or hurt or even betrayed. What should be your attitude? Next time we'll look at how practically that ought to work out, what we can do about as individuals. But let me just end with this. Following Jesus, growing in faith, discipleship is not a private affair. It's a communal one. It's a church one. And as disciples, we enter the kingdom of God like children. And now that we're in the kingdom of God, as followers, we receive one another as we would receive children with love and tenderness and kindness, knowing that how we receive each other is how we receive Christ. And then we protect each other, keep each other from stumbling, like we would protect children from what could damage and harm them. And today, we care for one another. And we ought to pursue one another when they wander away because this is the heart of God and this is the mark of a true church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for your word. Um, many of us probably are familiar in one way or another about how those things that we've heard are to be, um, but in life and, and in functionality, uh, just in our interactions on daily basis, uh, it's not always clear, it's not always evident. Um, when we are personally involved, it's not always uh, manifest, the things that we say we believe and trust. Um, You care about our growth. You care in the church, in the life of the church. You care about each and every one's faithfulness. And the responsibility uh, is not just to one person. It, it, it's to all those who belong to that family. And we have come so short of your heart in many ways. And we pray, therefore, that you would give us the grace and the faithfulness and the patience, the wisdom and love to reflect what we really believe in our hearts, what you have shown to us again and again. Not just between you and me, but Lord, between me and others. We pray uh, that your heart would be ours and ours would go out to them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.